Just Thrive Probiotic is the first and only 100% all-natural spore-form DNA verified and tested probiotic supplement. What is spore-form DNA? Well, spores are created by various bacteria to protect themselves against harsh environments. So the fact that Just Thrive uh, uses spore-form DNA and spore-form bacteria means that these bacteria are going to survive the stomach acid and go to your colon and your lower digestive system, where is where they're supposed to go, and help you out and increase their effectiveness. So I think it's a fantastic thing that they have spore-form bacteria as part of their probiotic. It's the subject of uh, groundbreaking clinical studies, and Just Thrive has demonstrated incomparable effects on the gut and undeniable connection to the immune system and brain. So Just Thrive, out of the goodness of their hearts, uh, they're offering my listeners 15% off site-wide. So if you go to justthrivehealth.com today, put in the code GENIUS15 to get advantage of uh, incredible savings and learn more. And I just got some in the mail as a thank you from Just Thrive, and I'm, I took my first two tonight, and I'm looking forward to seeing the effects. So again, go to justthrivehealth.com today. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note about the foundation. Uh, we've embarked upon a, a project to catalog uh, every possible treatment uh, for anxiety, depression, and PTSD, which I know is a very tall order. But if we can get, you know, 20, 25, maybe 30 different treatments in one place, and make it into a low or no cost resource for sufferers, that may be a very good thing. So that's the project we're working on. Uh, if listeners have interest, want to donate, want to volunteer, et cetera, please, please visit uh, FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today my guest is uh, Catherine Pittman. She's an author of uh, two books on coping with anxiety-based disorders, uh, which is drawing from her years of working in brain injury treatment, 25 plus years, with CBT as well. She runs uh, Roseland uh, Counseling. She's a practicing clinical psychologist that works with patients, again, that cope with anxiety, depression, PTSD. She provides this treatment. So, Catherine, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. I'm really looking forward to getting to talk to you. Oh, good. Well, tell me about your, your background. Like, How did you get into psychology and working with individuals? Well, I uh, was trying to decide whether I wanted to be an English major or a psychology major as a college student, and it was my psychology professor who really captured my interest, and the English professor didn't, so I went that direction, <laughs> and that's really what it was, but then I end up being a writer, too, so that's wonderful that I can kind of do both worlds. But when I when I went to graduate school, I was so interested in being a clinical psychologist and I really wanted to work with people that I was very, very upset when I was assigned to work with someone who was actually doing research on rats. Because I thought as a clinician, I was training to be a clinician, why should I work with rats? And it turned out that studying fear in rats turned out to be one of the best things I ever did in my life because when Joe Ledoux did his research on fear in rats and mapped out the whole little rat brain, which this is going to be discouraging to some people, 
but that's very similar to our brain when it comes to fear and anxiety. When he did that neurological work, and he was talking about rats, very few clinicians could understand some of the stuff he was talking about, about measuring fear in rats and understanding fear conditioning. But I had actually done all that stuff in graduate school. So I was a clinician who could understand neuropsychology and rat fear and human anxiety. And I turned out to be a person who could explain it to other people. So what were the interesting facets of um, the rat's fear mechanism? That applies to people. Understanding that the same way that the rat brain learns is the way that our brain learns. That is by the process of classical conditioning or pairing things. And it's not a logical process. The brain learns fear by associating fear with whatever the person or animal is seeing when something bad happens to them or whatever they're hearing or smelling or whatever. So That means that fear is not a logical kind of emotion and to expect it to be logical is, isn't right because it's not created by the logical parts of our brain. It's created in parts of our brain that were designed for survival. And so what that means is if we understand how fear is learned, then we can teach our brains not to respond with fear. But it's not by sitting down and talking to people and counseling. The Our brains don't learn to get over fear through talking as well as they do through experiences. Okay. Um, you mean like de- deconditioning experiences where right. experiences someone will be in a fear for situation, but it's controlled or something? Exactly. Or you exactly. You know, so the way that we can change our emotional responses is through having experiences that teach us to respond differently in those emotional situations, you know. So really, to try to help people understand anxiety, the more that we understand anxiety and how it's produced in the brain, it's very similar to fear. It's very similar to fear. If you understand how fear is produced in the animal brain, and we are animals, you'll understand more how to cope with your own fears and anxieties. That's really mm-hmm. what what I got to try to figure out how to put together to explain to people. So, okay. So what useful things have you learned to help people that have is this phobias or is this other kinds of fears? Like, it would are there different types of fears? Any situations in which your, your behavior is being governed by fears and anxiety. So phobias, but also PTSD, OCD, when we're talking about social anxiety, anytime a person's life is being impacted by a sense that they can't face something or they want to run away. Anytime, not just phobias, but PTSD and also, like I said, OCD, social anxiety, even uh, worry is really rooted in the fear based, the fear producing mechanisms in our brain. So when someone has problems with worry, that is also something we can really help people with by helping them understand what's going on in the brain. Well, what does that mean? What's an example? Of, okay, uh, someone so, having a particular fear, how do you help them? So, so for example, if you're talking about people having the experiences, there's two things we kind of have to start out right away is what's the difference between anxiety and fear? And the way that we separate them is by saying we'll call it fear if it's very clear 
what the person is responding to with what we would consider that sense of dread and trepidation and wanting to escape that emotion we're all pretty familiar with when when there seems to be a danger and we feel something in our in our chest um, there's a tension in our muscles that feeling of fear but anxiety is pretty much a very similar reaction going on in the brain and then in the body but what the difference is, is in anxiety, it's not clear that there's a real danger. So that, for example, when a, when a student, like I'm a college professor, you know, when a student goes into an exam and they have, they have test anxiety, we really can say it's not really clear what you're afraid of because so many times the very student with test anxiety gets an A on the test, you know, even yeah. though they're very nervous about taking it. And also there's not a physical danger to them. You know, the danger seems, so we would call that anxiety. Or if you're in a car accident and after that car accident, you have trouble getting behind the wheel of a car, even though you've driven for years and years without having a car accident. And now suddenly it's as if the whole world has changed, but actually you've changed. You know, now you can't get yeah. into a car and feel safe. So what we're talking about there is anxiety because the fear is there's no clear and present danger. It's that the person's fear is out of proportion to the situation. So you see the difference there? But the important thing to know about fear and anxiety, both, is that they are feelings. They're emotional reactions. They're also physiological reactions in the body and that we shouldn't always trust them. But they're very real. And that's where people get into, they say, no, is this fear real or is it not real? Well, it's a real feeling. It's really physiologically measurable. You can see changes happening in your body and your brain. But does it mean that there's a danger? Not necessarily, but it sure feels like there's a danger. And you can kind of think of it as an alarm system going off in your brain and in your body that's saying danger, danger, danger. And your reaction into your body is to prepare you for that danger. But the situation could be completely safe. And right. it's a real feeling, but whether there it's predicting danger is not, is the thing you have to remember that you, you don't know for sure if there is a danger. To give your body the important immune support it needs so you can feel your absolute best, get your gut in order with Just Thrive Probiotic. Uh, very nice of them. They're offering 15% off for listeners all across their website. So go to justthrivehealth.com and put in the code GENIUS15. You can take advantage of incredible savings and learn more about their products. So what do you do if someone has an irrational fear? Like, well, I think one of my favorite ones, I don't even know if this is real, but supposedly like Billy Bob Thornton had a fear of like antique furniture. I read in the news like years ago, but yeah, you know, I mean, a real, a real, like not a crazy fear, but no, but that, like what's, what's, see, like, that's what's a common thing. one. And what do you well, do? No, that's the thing that I could, you could have a fear of antique furniture. And the way that that would likely happen is if bad things happen to you in the presence of antique furniture, which could definitely occur to a child, something could happen. You could be punished, you know, in some way, or you could be harmed, fall off something or whatever. So that there can be people who have fears of slides and other children that run two slides and other people that when they see a slide, they begin to sweat. And it really has to do with the experiences that you have. And once you've had that experience, there's a part of your body that's going to react differently. And that part's in your brain. This is so important when I try to explain to people your brain has this very small part called the amygdala. There's actually two of them, one on the left and one on the right, but we just refer to it in the singular. And the amygdala 
is constantly watching our lives for any indication of something that's dangerous. Now, it does a bunch of other things, too. I mean, it's involved in pleasure, too. But people don't usually come to me saying, I've got a problem with having excessive pleasure, you know. They're usually all right with things like that. But what happens is if the amygdala learns, and it's a learning process, learns to fear, learns to respond with fear is really what it's doing. It's creating the fear response in the brain, in the body. And one of the things that I've done to try to explain this, this is so, such a huge, what do I want to say? There's so many impacts of the amygdala reacting and activating what we would call the the defense response or a fear response. When this is, when this, and it's good if someone can look at, I actually put together some resources for people who are trying to grasp what I'm talking about, because really it's the responding of the sympathetic nervous system. So I have a little resource, um, an image of all the different things that the, the sympathetic nervous system does when it's activated and see the amygdala has the ability to, in a fraction of a second, before you can even completely think about the situation, it can activate your sympathetic nervous system. And it does all kinds of things that some things you really feel like your heart rate changes, your muscle tensions change, but it does other things you might not be aware of, like dilating your pupils and inhibiting salivation in your mouth. It also sends the blood to different parts of your body. It sends it to your arms and legs so that you can fight or flee, run away. It causes all this huge response in your body. And you have no control over this because it's operating in a level of your brain that is set up to act, react immediately without you having to think about anything. Now, this has saved your life probably. I don't know, Richard, if you've had any situations where you've been on a highway and you reacted what it seems like on instinct or on reflex or something so oh yeah well have you ever noticed that when that happens it's almost like you have to replay it in your brain to figure out what happened and what you did because it was as if you weren't the one acting it happened so quickly that you hit the brake or you turned the wheel or you did whatever you did so quickly i can give you a, a weird you know a funny example like years ago when my eldest daughter was a baby, you know, we were visiting my parents and my wife was in the bed with the baby and I was sleeping on the floor. And it took me like, you know, I don't know, five, 10 seconds to get up off the floor. It was just unwieldy. Mm-hmm. And during the night, I thought I heard my daughter like fall on the floor and I was mm-hmm. up and I grabbed her and I have no clue how I got there. Like I must have flown up off the floor and grabbed her like, and there's no way I could have normally done that. No, all, all of a right. sudden, yeah, it was weird. Right. And that is so your amygdala is set up to operate on getting information directly from your senses before your cortex or the part of your brain that lets you see things and you hear things. This is the strangest thing. Your amygdala can see things before you can see them. It can hear things before you can hear them. So while you were sleeping, your amygdala could still hear the sound of your infant in a potentially dangerous situation and put your whole body into action. That's a great example. Before you were able to think of what you were even doing, you already had her in your arms before you could even, you were even completely awake probably. Yeah. I found myself holding her and be like, how did I get here? How did I do this? Right. That's a great example. And so what this means is, is we're trying to help people who come in 
complaining of whether their anxiety is related to needing to wash their hands all the time or whether they can't get into a car and drive anymore or whatever it is, they can't get up and give a speech in front of a class, we can say to them, we want to explain to you what part of your brain is creating this response. And we're going to have to explain this part of your brain is not something you can control by talking to it. I can't talk to it and control it. So we're going to have to explain to you how it learns. It's very different than what you might expect. So we, we need to be clear with you that this part of your brain, the amygdala, learns through experience and it detects things before you can see them and it can put your body into reactions that you can't hold yourself responsible for. And you know what? This helps people because they, they say, I thought I was crazy. We say, no, no, this is actually, have you heard of the fight or flight response? You know, this is actually built into us from centuries of being chased by predators and chased by other tribes and, you know, needing to fight and run and also to freeze. And, and that's really what the amygdala is good at helping us do, fleeing or fighting or freezing. But, you know, in the 21st century, those responses don't help us in so many situations, you know? So understanding how the brain is even structured helps people. Um, there's, there's three different parts of the brain I'm usually trying to explain to people at the minimum. And it, it usually has to do with the amygdala. But then I try to explain there's a part of your brain that gathers all the information from your senses, from what you're seeing and feeling and hearing. It's called the thalamus. It's like a, in the center of your brain. And I also have, a, I have an image of this. People can look at it if they want to see in the materials. But in the center of your brain, there's this walnut-shaped part that gathers all your sensory experiences. And you know what it does? It sends those experiences to two different places at the same time. It sends that information up into your cortex, the large curved part of your brain, mm -hmm. where you can, where you get the information and you can then see it. But it takes a little time for that to get processed, just fractions of seconds. But at the same time, it sends it up there to get processed so that you actually see something or hear something it also sends it to the amygdala and the amygdala gets the information first. And when the amygdala gets that information, it can just disregard it. Like that's not important. I don't care. Or it can, it can say, this is something we should go toward. Like if you smell chocolate chip cookies baking and you're like, Ooh, move toward them. Or it can be jump away, or it can be, this is a sound that means the baby's in danger, or this is a car coming at you. And it can create this response in your body. So it's a good thing. But the problem is, it just doesn't fit our world anymore. And there's so many times when we may feel in danger and yet not know how to educate the amygdala about that. And so when the thalamus sends information to the cortex and to the amygdala, though, it's the amygdala that gets the first chance to respond. And if we can understand this kind of deconstruct our experience and help people understand it, really helps them understand what they're going through. And they can say, what, I'm, I'm not going crazy. I'm not having a heart attack, you know, um, and they can understand why can't I think clearly right now? It's kind of, the amygdala's kind of hijacked your brain right this minute and it's taking over. And so the good news is that we don't really have to explain the whole brain to people in order for them to understand this. We just need to say, there's these two pathways. And what this is, is this these two pathways is really taking a, a neurologically informed approach to anxiety and saying, if you want to change your anxiety, you need to change these processes in your brain. And we know how to do this. You know, 
there's a lot of disorders that well, we need how, to how if, how if someone if someone does have fears what kind of therapy would help them uh, relax that and not experience it anymore okay so first thing to remember is the amygdala learns through the process of experience and so in order for it to learn new information and it it we can't unteach it things we can't erase a memory, but we can replace memories with new memories. So if you have a bad experience, say, say you have, say your, your child, say your daughter, you know, she uh, has a bad experience with a cat that scratches her. Then the next time she sees a cat, she starts crying and running away. She doesn't want to be anywhere near a cat. And you know, it doesn't have to be the same cat that hurt her. It could be anything that, that looks similar to that cat. And in fact, she could even be afraid of things that are the amygdala does not get the clear information that your cortex gets. It's getting kind of raw, unprocessed information. So it might be afraid of anything with the same color as the cat. So if it sees a black fuzzy dog, it might be afraid of the black fuzzy dog because a black cat scratch. So it doesn't, the amygdala doesn't make sense sometimes, but you can see how it's useful for a child to learn if something hurts you, don't go near it again. That's a good memory. But now you want to go over to grandma's house and grandma has cats and she's terrified of the cats, even though they would never hurt her, you know. So what we have to do is give the amygdala a learning experience. We have to teach her amygdala that cats can be fun. Cats can be neutral. They can be nothing, just sitting there, not doing anything to you. We just need to make sure we change the memory. Now, unfortunately, the minute we put your daughter around a cat, she's going to, the amygdala is going to detect that and going to create a fear response. So the problem is, does that fear response mean that the child's in danger? No, and you know that, but she doesn't know that and she feels terrible and she just wants to get away. So we have to work to gradually usually do this kind of thing where we gradually expose someone to something in ways that help their amygdala learn. But I want to tell you something, that's the kinder, gentler approach. But the amygdala even learns sometimes, and unfortunately, some of us have parents that did this, who just would like throw you in the water or something. And they'd be like, so, see, you're fine. You're fine. You know, and the truth is the amygdala can learn from experiences like that kind of too, as long as, as long as they turn out happy and calm. But as you know, it's better if we work on things in kind of a kinder, gentler way and let the amygdala learn, not through like going through any more trauma of any kind, but just learning that through exposure. I think most of us think we call this exposure. I think most of us can think of a time when we had a fear of something and by being exposed to a situation, we got over that fear. Now, this is something we don't do automatically. You know, when there's something that frightens us, we do not think, I need to approach that thing. But if you understand how the amygdala learns, you're going to understand that that is the only way to change the amygdala. And this means you start to think and, and talk about to get through anxiety, to get through fears, you need to push through them instead of kind of respecting that feeling and feeling like I have to obey this feeling. I have to not, not push through this. And that's a very different thing to do. And it doesn't feel intuitively right. But that's why it helps to have this conversation about these two pathways to fear, right? 
trying to help people understand that there's two pathways to anxiety and fear in the brain. And what's happening with your daughter is what we call the, the amygdala pathway. And once again, I do have a little graph that kind of explains this, that helps a person to see it, where instead of looking at the actual image of the brain, you could say information comes in, whether it's through your eyes or through your ears, and it always goes first to the thalamus. The thalamus sends it two places, sends it to the cortex and sends it to the amygdala. What part is going to see it first? Going to be the amygdala. And if the amygdala has reason from previous experiences, to believe that this is a dangerous object, a dangerous sound, a dangerous smell, whatever, the amygdala will produce reactions in the body and in the brain that are this fight or flight response. And you will be well, very kind of a, to get away from that thing. What happens if, uh, let's say, someone in uh, you know a university or college is told, I don't know, they're in danger and they need a safe space? And they've been trained to essentially be afraid of what other people may consider normal. Okay. What happens to that person? So if people have been trained, well, what if it's happened by, for example, their school having shootings and they've had to take cover when someone says there's a danger and everybody needs to get in the closet. And this has happened to many of our college students where they've gone through a school shooter or a threat of a shooter or something. And when those situations happen, um, we're talking about a different pathway that the amygdala may look around and see nothing of danger. There's no sign of any danger. But what's happening is the thalamus is sending those messages people are giving, the statements the teacher's making. We have an active shooter. You need to get into the closet, right? Well, what happens is the thalamus has sent that information to the amygdala. The amygdala is unlikely to react necessarily to those words or whatever because it isn't something that's processed necessarily as a, as a danger. But when that information gets into the cortex, now the person starts creating images of their brain, of things they've seen on television, of television programs or movies they've seen, perhaps even personal experiences they've had. And those images in the cortex those can activate the amygdala, even though the amygdala wasn't activated itself. So we have these two pathways. One pathway is based on the amygdala directly getting something, it in, some sensory information it interprets as a threat. But also the thoughts you have can scare the amygdala. Now that's kind of putting it in layman's terms, because what it really is, is that the amygdala is set up to monitor, has all kinds of neural connections up into the cortex, monitoring what's going on in the cortex. And here's the scary thing, Richard, there's not a clear, any clear evidence that the amygdala can really say, tell the difference between thoughts about someone shooting and the actual image of someone with a gun looking at you. The amygdala may process those things fairly similarly and create the reaction. So it matters what you think, Richard. If you are thinking scary thoughts, that can activate your amygdala. And this is the second pathway to anxiety, you know? And understanding these pathways is really important just to dissect a certain experience. That's why I want to ask you if someone is told or raised to be afraid of certain things mm -hmm. and haven't mm -hmm. even experienced those things. Right. Does it, you know, still, does it still affect oh, them in the same way? Great example. For example, 
when I would take my daughter to the bus stop when she was a little girl, we would go down there and I'd be standing with her. There was a lady there who would come down with her daughter and she would say, I have to be here so you don't get abducted. I'm watching for people who might abduct you. I don't want anyone to kidnap. And she kept talking like that in front of the kids. And that image she was creating and talking about with the kids was making them afraid of the bus stop and giving them fears that I didn't really want my daughter to have because of that present. It didn't even have to be something that happened to them. She just had to talk about that and create it like telling a child a story. So yes, we have, we have fears that come from our experiences sometimes, and we have fears that come from the things that people tell us and the thoughts we have ourselves. So when you're working with someone, I guess pretty quickly by asking them backstory, you can mm-hmm. tell how they first developed this, this issue. Well, what, sometimes what do they call not. It? Fears, sometimes. phobias? Well, sometimes you can't really, like, I know a woman that she was saying, uh, she has this fear of going to her in-laws houses, and I couldn't figure out anything at first, you know, it's really hard. But the truth is, we don't have to know the backstory to teach the amygdala. If I know you have a fear of a situation, and you can't tell me how you developed it, I still know that the way to teach the amygdala is to gradually introduce it to the situation until we can have the fear go down. And that's a, that's this treatment we call exposure therapy that we work on or systematic desensitization. Sometimes people call it. So I know that that's it, but also we have to talk about what you say to yourself in your, in your brain, because we can work to help your amygdala get over fears. But if in your head, you're thinking thoughts like this dog's going to bite me, this dog's going to bite me, that is undoing that whole process because that will create fear through the second pathway. So when you're trying to treat, when you're really trying to treat anxiety, you have to attend to both of these pathways, the amygdala pathway and the cortex pathway to make sure that you're effectively treating anxiety. So is the treatment different for actual traumatic events versus, um, you know, traumatic events that you've been told about? Do you notice any difference? Most anxiety-based disorders have involvement of both the cortex and the amygdala in the process. But some are more like heavily kind of developed through the cortex pathway. Like OCD has a lot to do with thinking scary thought. But the amygdala is definitely involved in that the amygdala is kind of like the thing that fuels your anxiety. And so what we've discovered, and this is just an awesome part of treatment that didn't exist before we understood the connections of the amygdala. What we've learned is that there's some ways to calm down the amygdala that they don't make any sense logically. Like, for example, if someone is feeling panicky because they can't pay their mortgage and they're afraid of getting evicted, if you have that person go for a run for 20 minutes, they will feel much calmer. And now nothing has happened to change the situation, but think about it. Can you think of some reason why that might help? If all of our fear and anxiety is not created by the cortex, it's created always by the amygdala. It's created when the amygdala sees danger in the thoughts in the cortex or when the amygdala sees danger in the sensory information coming in, right? So that means even when you have a fear that is thought-based, running will help because running calms down the amygdala. Any kind of physical activity that's aerobic will often kind of reset the amygdala in a way. 
And that's because what's the amygdala do? It, pr it produces this fight or flight response, you know? So what we're talking about here is if we understand that that's what we're dealing with and we go for a run, the amygdala, now this sounds kind of nutty, but the amygdala in a way is acting as though you're safe now, you ran away, even though you didn't run away from the mortgage, but the amygdala isn't logical like that. So we start to incorporate. Is it, is it, is it that or is it the fact that you're exercising and running and therefore your being is consumed with breathing harder and running and paying attention to all that stuff and therefore maybe it breaks the rumination cycle as part of no, fear? because it's not just distraction because we can actually look at the activation level in the amygdala. We can actually see when we do something like even like deep breathing, we can watch the amygdala's activation decrease. There's a, there's another one too, like running, deep breathing. Another one is getting good sleep, which of course, when you're anxious is very difficult. But if you work on strategies for improving your sleep and getting more sleep, the amygdala is calmer than when you are sleep deprived. And so, so many people will come in and talk about, I had a panic attack and we can tie it back to the fact they had a very poor night's sleep and their amygdala was activated not necessarily directly only by the stress of the day, but also by the fact that the, the sleep it, that they needed that usually calms down the amygdala. Um, and it's a chemical kind of process. It has to you're kind of rebalancing the chemistry by getting decent sleep. If you don't get that good sleep, then the amygdala is more reactive and then you have more anxiety. And maybe you've had those experiences where you know I am just so tense and jumpy today. And that's just your amygdala. And that can happen when you don't get enough sleep. So we've learned with people who have anxieties or fears that if we incorporate improving sleep, lengthening their sleep, we add exercise in that we decrease the anxiety that's kind of in the system by decreasing amygdala activation. So it's really good strategies that are neurologically based and also the breathing so many people feel like, what good, I mean, you're so, seriously asking me to do this deep, slow breathing, and that's supposed to help me. It seems silly, but when you introduce this idea and you say, you know what, I can show you how people who are breathing deeply while we show them scary images, their amygdalas don't activate in the way that people who are deep, who are not deep breathing when we show them scary images have reacting amygdalas. People are like, wow, they start thinking about this part in their brain and they become more mindful about the experience of anxiety. They start to realize that anxiety and fear is an emotional response in their brain and body. In it's, it's a physical response that they're having, but they can kind of observe it a little better as opposed to getting caught up in it and trusting it. They start to realize my amygdala can be wrong. My amygdala can set off the alarm of fear or anxiety when there's not a fear. I mean, I'm sorry, when there's not a danger, there's definitely a fear. And this is the thing that's tricky with people because they'll say, is my reaction real or not? Your reaction is real. It's measurable. I can measure your blood pressure going up. I can show you parts of your brain being activated. I can show you, you know, changes even in like the digestive processes in your stomach. It is real. But does it indicate a danger? No. And this is what we have to work with you on to help you push through your fear 
to be able to be around a dog so you can date this person who has a dog now, you know, or to be able to get back behind the wheel so you can get to work again, you know, that we can help you change your brain to change your anxiety. Okay. What does the treatment protocol look like? You said, I guess, slow desensitization. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Well, uh, well that's and that is person, kind of slow desensitization is kind of all you need to do when you're working with the phobia. But what about when somebody has um, like PTSD where they're, they're being triggered by things, then that's right. You want to deal with that, but they're also having certain thoughts that are bothering them and memories that are coming back when they're not even in the situation. So it becomes, we need to treat the cortex. We need to help you. You know, we talk about things with the cortex, like you need to learn how to change the channel. You know, how many channels you have in your brain. We need to help you recognize that it's okay to get off, say like the hand washing channel, which is going to be really hard after COVID because we've really been taught that we need to do these things. But when our world is changing and becomes more safe, we're going to have a lot of people who are going to have trouble with the fear of dealing with, you know, not social distancing. I'm telling you with my college students, they've been in classes with masks on. It has had just a terrible effect on just their ability to speak in public. So there's a lot more social phobia than there used to be because they just kind of learned to just sit there with their mouth literally covered. And they were punished for talking. Richard, they were punished for talking because when they talked, you know what I usually would do? I would usually have to say, can you say that again? Because I couldn't right. understand you. And then they're, they're like, I, it was hard enough for saying it once. I'm not going to say it again. No, never mind. So we have a lot of work to do coping with some of the anxiety and, and fears that we've all lived through in the last two years now, you know. Yeah, so we're going to need to treat the cortex. We're going to need to treat the amygdala. And the way we treat the cortex is, is so different because the cortex luckily can learn from some of the things we talk about. Some of the things that I tell people, the cortex does learn. Like, for example, if you uh, are having a panicky feeling and you end up going to the um, emergency room and you're just terrified by what's happening because your heart is pounding and you're very nervous. And we just talk to you and say, you weren't having a heart attack. You were having a panic attack. Let me explain what a panic attack is. And your heart is pounding. That's a good thing. It's pumping blood to your extremities to help you run. It's a healthy heart. A heart attack is when your heart stops beating. So I want you to, when you, when you experience this next time, remember that your heart pounding is a good sign. Now, just telling someone that just that information helps change their cortex. So their cortex stops creating more fear on top of the panic attack. They weren't just feeling the, the, the terrible feelings of a panic attack. They were also thinking to themselves, I am dying. So now they can think to themselves, I'm not dying. I'm having a panic attack. This is terrible and it's real, but I'm not dying. In fact, my heart is very healthy or I couldn't even have a panic attack like this, you know? So something. Well, how, do, how, do, how do people, do people have to be guided in yeah. order to be able to talk themselves down or at least take the edge off of a panic attack, for instance? Right. We have to help them. And this is where the cognitive or the thought-based interventions come to. We say, we have to be careful that you don't think yourself into anxiety. So 
say, for example, this is this might be happening. I'm walking my dog down the street. And as I'm walking my dog down the street, I see a fire engine going back in the direction I came from where toward where my house is. And I think to myself, oh, my God, did I leave the stove on? Did I leave the curling iron? Did I? Is there a fire in my house? And then I start to feel panicky. Now, that is a cortex based fear. The amygdala would not have gone off and created fear if it hadn't been the thought in your brain. And I, once again, in the materials, I have a little illustration of this where you think, you know, my house is on fire. That is going to activate the amygdala, the images and the thoughts about your house being on fire, right? So it isn't seeing the fire truck. It's your interpretation. And this is so true. Like, let's say you and a friend are having um, a conversation and you see a funny expression on your friend's face and you think she's angry at me. She's upset with me. That may be the case. It may not be the case. But if you go home thinking, I'm not calling her again because she was sensitive and she's upset about what I said, you have no idea if that thought is correct or not. But so many times it's these thoughts that activate our amygdala. So we have to work with people who have, say, like worries and who sit and think about things that could potentially happen and activate their amygdala, creating all kinds of anxiety when nothing bad is happening, it's all just the thinking process. But so many of us think worrying is a good thing, but it's not really a good thing unless unless you use it correctly. So part of what I try to do in, in my books, like Rewire Your Anxious Brain and Rewire Your OCD Brain, is try to help people see these processes occurring in the brain and how you can change what's happening in your brain. And that changes the response of your amygdala. So you get your cortex on a different channel. You know, when that when that fire truck goes by, instead of thinking about your house on fire, saying, ah, it's going to just make me nervous. I got to just say a prayer for whoever that, you know, that fire truck's going for. And it's not me. I have no evidence that it's me. And keep that keep that thought out of your mind if you can. Because as we know, how many times do you really get yourself all worked up over something that's not true? And at the very least, you could turn around and head back toward your house and say, I'm not going to panic until I see evidence that there's a fire in my house. So I have no evidence of that. And I need to enjoy these flowers along the way and say hello to people and not keep playing these images of my house on fire because that is activating my amygdala. But as people come to understand this, they really are empowered to change their anxiety responses and to start working toward their goals and pushing through anxiety. It's a step-by-step process. And you don't have to change fears about everything. Like if you have a fear of spiders, no one says you have to get over that. But if let's say you're a plumber, that might be a problem in your life. You might need to deal with it. So we can have fears. You know, someone can be afraid of snakes or riding on a bus. And if it doesn't affect your life, I say, let your amygdala have that fear, whatever. But I want to help you work on the fears that are blocking you from your goals. And I want to teach you how it is that this is developing in your brain. And and I'm sorry to, you know, like shove all this out there in like one little podcast. But I just want to say we understand what's going on in the brain and we can help you understand it. And there's very few disorders we can say that about. I can't say that about autism. I can't say that about bipolar disorder, even depression. But when it's an anxiety disorder or PTSD or 
OCD, there's so much we do know about what's happening that we can help you change the brain to stop producing those symptoms. And it's really empowering when people know they can do that. Well, very good. I'm glad you can help people. What's, what, how do they start with you? Do they get your books? Uh, do they go to your website? Do they try to get a consultation? Like people I would, I listening, would tell people, how do they get help? You know, I, I would tell people the best thing that you probably can do is if you're interested in learning more to consider just even checking the book out from the library or whatever, you know, I don't really want to say you have to buy the book, but it's only a $15 book. It's not a real expensive one, but to see if this makes sense to you and you may need someone's help because Sometimes you need to have a therapist that can can help encourage you and validate some of this stuff because you're, you're going against what your body's telling you often, you know, you're afraid. So I, I wouldn't say everybody can just read the book, but I've had so many people tell me that if you read rewire your anxious brain, they're like, for the first time, I understand what's going on. And I have a sense of how I can deal with it. It was just you know, I was overwhelmed by what I was feeling it, but I wasn't understanding it. So I think that's, that's the really thing. Cool. I, I really do think, and the book is written not for therapists. It's written for the person suffering from anxiety. And, you know, I'm a college professor and I've been teaching here at St. Mary's College for, for 30 years. And I've been explaining this stuff to my students and they've really helped me. They like being told things in a more simple way they don't want to hear all the you know the neurological stuff they say how can you put this in language you understand so so they help they in talking to them it's helped me be able to say things like you want to change the channel or you know not not focus on what channel you have a lot of other things you can think about and that makes sense to them you know they say that's true I'm not saying it's easy to change the channel but they say at least I know what I need to do you know, okay. Okay. trying well, to, good. trying to understand that I think is, is the best way. Excellent. Well, Catherine, thank you. I can see you're very passionate about this. And I am, uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's so frustrating to know we have resources for people, but that they don't know. So that's, I guess what I want to say is if there's a lot of therapists out there that can help people. And if you read, read the book and say, Oh, now I know I just need help knowing how to do this stuff. Cause it's scary. But you can get help. And really, the CBT approaches, cognitive behavioral therapy approaches, are the approaches that involve exposure and they involve cognitive or thought-based interventions. And that's, you know, focusing on both the amygdala and the cortex. That's helping. That's helping a lot. Very good. Well, Catherine, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Sure. Glad to be here. Remember, before you go, the easiest thing you can do to support your immune system and your gut health is to check out Just Thrive Probiotic. Go to their website, justthrivehealth.com, and use the promo code GENIUS15 at checkout. You get 15% off. Thank you, Just Thrive. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.